Hey everybody, Chris here. You may know us these days as the Personal Injury Mastermind, but you've discovered our roots when we first started as the Rankings Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Over the years and hundreds of episodes, we've expanded our reach while staying true to our mission. We help you and your firm dominate the competition with insights from some of the best in the legal industry. You may notice that these older episodes sound a bit different. That's because we also embrace change and growth. I hope you enjoy this episode from the vaults and listen to a few of our newer episodes while you're at it. Thanks for being here. Let's begin. Job opportunities can present themselves in various ways. Help wanted signs, online ads, or even a referral from a friend could lead you into a new career. But sometimes job offers can come from unexpected places. This is something that my guest today knows all too well. Like a lot of people, the opportunity finds you. I had been a felony prosecutor down in Akron, Ohio, and I tried a case against a doctor, a criminal case. And the lawyer who was representing the doctor worked at a medical malpractice defense firm. We, even though we were adversaries in the case, obviously it was a professional and collegial relationship, and he had that firm then come hire me. That's how medical malpractice found me. It found me through trial work. And I love it because it's really, it's a fact-driven practice and every case has its own unique set of circumstances. My guest today is Jay Kelly, managing partner at Elk and Elk. Jay's focus is on medical negligence and he was named Medical Malpractice Lawyer of the Year. He is an authority on birth injury and medical liability and has had his work on medical legal issues and medical legal risk management published in two books. Join us as we find out why some lawyers avoid medical malpractice, what it's like working for a family firm, and how studying acting has helped him in his career. That's coming up on the Rankings Podcast, the show where founders, entrepreneurs, and elite personal injury attorneys share their inspiring stories about what they did to get to the top and what keeps them there. I'm Chris Dreyer. Stay with us. Jay has a passion for medical malpractice cases, and it's an area in which he's made a name for himself. However, his niche isn't one that many lawyers find themselves wanting to get into. I asked Jay why he thought lawyers were wary of medical negligence cases and why it's a path that few choose to follow. It's expensive, it's complicated, and the statistics kind of bear out that it's a very difficult area to win in front of a jury. So I think that the auto cases and the slip and falls, while those are challenging, and I don't mean to mean those practices at all, they're a little more predictable. A medical malpractice case, you know, when I try a birth injury claim, we usually have somewhere upwards of a quarter of a million dollars in advanced case expenses out on that case. And when you talk about betting on yourself in this world, you're betting on your own triage assessment of the case and assessment of those facts because that money doesn't come back. So I think the overhead and the risk scares a lot of people out of it. And you do have to have at least a level of medical knowledge to be able to sense whether or not a witness is being transparent and honest with you, you know, during the course of depositions and or testimony, depending on what state you're in. So like those EQ components, kind of reading the the, the witnesses and, and that aspect. Yeah, and we've done every year, I lecture to medical groups you know, some of the largest, you know, nursing groups for neonatal, which is obviously, you know, newborn healthcare. 
a group called A-W-H-O-N-N. -A I speak, you know, frequently there. I do fetal monitoring lecturing. I've invested myself into, I've written textbook chapters in medical text for gynecology, fetal monitoring. And people always laugh and they're like, why in the world would you do it? And why in the world would they invite you? And the line I always use to start those speeches is, I've never learned anything from someone I agree with. And, you know, if we really want to improve healthcare, and that includes not only the delivery of healthcare in an efficient and safe manner, but also the compensation system for people who are hurt during healthcare, because it's foreseeable. Like you can't avoid that there's going to be mistakes made in healthcare. And you need a system that's also reasonable and efficient for them. So I believe that by sharing a patient's perspective in a lawsuit with physicians and nurses, hopefully it makes them less fearful of the process. And you know, we always hear about defensive medicine and things like that. And we can find those efficiencies that allow us to tell where there might be a case of merit and how to process it without really taxing the legal system or the family too much. I have so much respect for the providers, but I also have such a keen awareness of what people are going through. And honestly, that's probably one of the skills I think that I provide is a very sharp ability to navigate what happened. Because that's why they call. They don't call us saying like, give us money. I've never had a client ask me about money. Every client asks one question and it's the same question. And they're like, I don't know what happened. And they want an answer. You know, it's a, it's a cool practice. You have this rounded experience of being on both sides. And, and I, I thought one of the things that I read, you mentioned that you took drama and theater classes and they were very valuable for you being a trial lawyer. You know, what about those classes impacted your ability in the courtroom? So I 100% am a lawyer because of two acting classes I took at the College of Worcester from a professor that was a visiting professor from Ireland named Vincent Dowling. In that class, he really was all about how you communicate and that acting was just a form of communication and how you communicate with your body posture, your position, your tone, and how the words, why they're part of it, communication is so much more. And I kind of fell in love with public speaking. I kind of fell in love with the aspects of you know, communication. Then I took Shakespearean styles of acting. I think my parents were terrified, but it just really made me want to get into persuasive speaking. So I, I use it in every trial, where I stand, how I stand, how I stand at sidebar. I am conscious of how I appear throughout the entirety of a trial. I, I love that. I mean, especially the body language. I mean, you can, you immediately get that first impression based on body language and how you're representing yourself. Let me, let me take it kind of a different direction too. So you, you're now the managing partner of Elk and Elk. Do you find, since it's a family owned business, those candid conversations come easier? Because everyone says you're not supposed to mix business and family, but it seems to be working. So, you know, what's it like being the managing partner in that mix? So here's what I'll tell you. Every strength is your weakness. You know what I mean? You can never separate them. And the strongest thing that we have is our family values principles. And to not give David credit and art credit for that would be 
the most shallow thing I could ever do. You know, my life changed dramatically by coming here in ways I never anticipated. So the family values and the family nature of it does create an intimacy and a trust within the four walls that I think really helps the day-to-day management of the firm. The risk of a family firm is the perception that it can create outside. So people, when you hear the repeating names or you see brothers, you start to wonder what's here. So sometimes we have tried to make sure that people understand that while we did start as a family firm, we now have 87 employees. You know, we have 22 lawyers. Our average lawyer tenure here, I think is 14 years right now. So we keep people, you know what I mean? And that's a reflection of those family values, but sometimes communicating that it's not just a family firm, you know, cause some people, you know, what do you want to hire? You want to hire the firm that has the most resources. You can say it, but you've got to have a way to let people inside to see that we have multiple nurses and multiple specialties on staff that we have our own entire marketing department. We have our own filming studio. Like it's a significant business. It's really two businesses. It's a law firm and a, you know, marketing, you know, arm. I love that. You know, when you identify the values too, it helps you to identify who would be the right fit for your, for your firm. Because, you know, ultimately I I talk about this a lot, right? You couldn't take a catcher and put them in center field. You know, do you find that that, knowing and understanding those values makes it really easy to recruit and, and hire. And, and not only that, but to keep, keep your people for 14 years. I mean, that's just, that's just incredible. I think that our biggest, our biggest challenge, because, you know, we're, we're playing up attorneys. So, you know what I mean? If there's going to be a joke at a holiday party, it's probably going to be about us. <laughs> so the public sees you differently from the skyscraper law firm and things like that. But What's interesting is legally, we have no shortage of available, talented, incredible people that want to come work here. And that wasn't the case 18, 20 years ago. I mean, the firm was kind of on an uptick, you know, and that was from Art and Dave making a true commitment, you know, to making it the best firm anywhere in the country. But, you know, you walk down our halls, the vast majority of people here have been partners at other defense law firms over the years. So we went and somebody who we thought was the best that we came across in trucking, let's go get them. The person I try a lot of birth injury cases, the woman who I always thought was the most difficult to have on the other side, she's a neonatal nurse who went to law school, let's just go get her. And what we were amazed by is that by doing the business the way that we think is right, and everybody has their own opinion of what's right and the business. It's been amazing that doors that used to never open for us with incredibly talented, successful lawyers at some of the biggest firms, those people are now, they not only take your call, they're excited. And it's allowed us to add a ton of talent to this firm and experience to this firm, you know, that I think really does benefit not only the firm, but the clients. As a firm, Elk & Elk has assembled a formidable team of lawyers whose expertise range from auto accidents to wrongful death cases. But as the old saying goes, too many cooks spoil the broth. So I wanted to find how exactly the firm is able to harness the collective experience in order to benefit their clients. 
every case goes through a filter system here. And that system that we put it through is, it's collaborative. It would be the most insanely narcissistic thing in the world for me to say, I'm going to decide alone if you have a case. So what we do is we kind of take the case almost like a funnel and we go one step at a time. But at every step, all of the attorneys who are in our firm that do medical malpractice, the nurses and the paralegals who work the cases are all in that room. So if we decide that something's not a case, it's after we've indexed the records, reviewed the records, reviewed the literature, and it's a collective decision. And our hope in that is that from a firm standpoint, we don't miss good cases because somebody doesn't see something. But most importantly for the client, they're not getting a single attorney review. They're getting five attorneys with a nurse, with medical research, and we go one step at a time. And if it passes through the gate, we go to the next step so that we're trying to always provide honest, timely answers to people. It's not a single opinion. And what's fun about it is it really makes your day better. And it provides so much peace of mind to you as a lawyer that if all of a sudden your thoughts are validated or your questions are clarified by people within your own firm, you know, when we get to the point of filing a case, what we typically do is we're supposed to have a case filing meeting mm-hmm. where the most detailed presentation is in there. And everybody then voices on, I would get this expert, watch out for this specialty. This is who typically represents, because you want to go into it, giving people the best chance in the world to make a recovery within the legal system. So let's talk about, you know, some learning experiences. Have there Are there any pitfalls that stand out, like things that went wrong, but now you've learned from them? So we have definitely gotten better about learning how to be 100% transparent, even with bad facts for clients. People aren't hiring a cheerleader. They might think they want a cheerleader at first, but, you know, we have a very, very transparent approach with our clients where we tell them, this is the risk of your case. This is the challenge of your case. And by including clients every step of the way in the process and making the client the singular focus of the process, it has honestly changed our business in the office and in the courtroom. And, you know, we have a mission statement for the people in here that if it's good for the client, do it. If it's good for the firm, do it. If it's not fair to you, we'll fix it. But we only fix it after you do what's best for the client and the firm. And, you know, a story that I will tell you is myself and a lawyer, you know, I tried a bunch of cases with a fantastic lawyer. We tried a case where we killed the other side factually, and it could not have gone better. And one of we learned two huge things in that case. It was a tight courtroom. He and I sat at the trial table. The client sat behind the rail just because of the way the court was configured. And we talked about it when it first came up. We're like, I don't know if I like her being back there 
and we're like, well, but we need the table. You know, it's, we're lawyers. We're it's about us. So they kind of became a little disconnected from the case. And going back to my whole posture and communication, it prevented any sort of interaction with your client where people saw that the case was not about two lawyers that people probably don't like presumptively. It's now not about those, that nice couple behind the rail. We learned that and we learned that even with the jury, you have to say what you want immediately. And what I mean by that is people always save damages and stuff like that for the end. We didn't mention our ask in the case until closing argument. And I saw one juror's face light up and jury goes out. They give us a, a verdict well above what the last offer was. And it was a good number. It wasn't the number we asked for. And what was interesting about that was I've always said it's easy to convince people of things they want to believe and almost impossible in a courtroom to change their mind. It's, like, it's a fight. Can't change someone's mind in a fight. And I let him formulate his own belief as to what the value of the case was. And there was nothing I could say in closing argument that was going to change that. And then he convinced the entire jury, you know, how he got to his number and became the authority in the case. So from that moment forward, we put damages in jury selection, in open, we told people exactly what we were asking for. And what's interesting is I would say in greater than 90% of the cases where we have been successful since, we've gotten the exact number we asked for. It's become a destination. Because those people don't know, just like our yeah. clients when they come in don't know what their right. case is worth, they don't know what the facts of the case are, what's required. So you kind of say, this is where we're going. If I prove number one and number two to you, can you go to number, this is where we think number three is. So instead of putting people on a road without a map and without telling them you know, where they're gonna be spending their vacation days, we say, this is where you're going. This is what we're asking for. This is why we're asking for it. We've come totally around that it's a client first business and you have to be immediately transparent in everyone you, with everyone you interact with, opposing counsel, courts, clients, and jurors. I love that. And you're just, you're hitting the, the Ray Dalio's principle book, radical candor, radical transparency. I mean, just everything on the head. So, you know, you're, you're the managing partner of Elk and Elk now. And I like to ask this question. It's a little bit different. It gets you to think a little bit too, but you only have so much time. So what does your, your high value activities look like? What, what provides the most value to the firm that you do? Really, there's three places where I think my time gets divided among. One is case management. And I love that part of my practice. You know what I mean? And what I have done is I handle still the same, typically the birth injury, the catastrophic cases, or if someone is a specific client of mine or referral to me. But, you know, I've reduced some of that volume in my life because, look, if I represent you, you have my cell phone from day one. And honestly, if you want my website, you have my cell phone from day one. If I'm your lawyer and you can't get a hold of me, I'm not your lawyer. I'm just a phone number or some like blog post. The other part is inter-office day-to-day management, whether that be 
case assignments or those types of things. But you know, John O'Neill, I would say, who's in our office as a you know partner as well, does a lot of the running, if not all of the running of the litigation side for the auto cases, the trucking cases, and some of those issues, and then the marketing. And the marketing, if you think about it, it's storytelling at the end of the day. So, you know, people probably, if you look historically, have seen my goal from a marketing standpoint for the firm is really introducing the truth of our firm to the public. And the legal community knows who we are. The legal community knows what we are. And as I you know, say, like, the legal community trusts and respects us. How in the world do you introduce to when 99.9% .9 of the population never thinks they're going to need a lawyer? So we're an interstitial or interruptive ad no matter what we do. How do you communicate with them? So what we've tried to do is try to do things where we start to introduce more people in our firm than Art and Dave. So kind of bring the entire firm forward so people see the quality of attorney, of attorney, the quality of paralegal, the quality of nursing, you know I mean, and support staff that we have here. So we can start to earn people's trust where they don't just say, that's a law firm that advertises, they say, the same way they look at a hospital like in Cleveland, the same way they look at the Cleveland Clinic and say, if I had something serious, I want to go to university hospitals or Cleveland Clinic because those are our two largest hospitals with the best people and the best resources. You don't want to put your money in a small bank. I want people to start to look at our firm the same way that, wait a second, I can get personal service, I can get quality service because I've seen the resources that they bring to bear. So, you know, a third of my time is in marketing and part of marketing is, you know, we have a ton of, of brand recognition. We're trying to build both for the industry of legal work and the firm specifically brand credibility. That's a great answer. I know the name of the firm is Elk and Elk, but one of the first things that stood out was just expertise, expertise. I like trusted that you know, your firm was very high quality and did exceptional work. I don't know exactly what it was for one individual thing that I read, but it was kind of an immersive experience. You've got a, you know, a great website and that's just kind of the feeling that I got as an observer, you know, so let, let me jump, let me go over to a, uh, a personal question just to have some fun here. So I, I read you were a big Cavs and Browns fan and uh, you know, so I got to ask, how did you handle LeBron leaving? Do you still own any LeBron jerseys? So for the first time was hard. And I mean, for sure. The first time LeBron left was definitely hard because, you know, he was one of your own and you had something so special and unique. The second time wasn't as hard. Not that we don't want him here because he's right. such a great ambassador for our city and for our state. I went to law school in Akron, you know, started prosecuting in Akron. I mean, so I have a ton of Akron connections. But he delivered something to this city that had gotten to a point where it almost seemed impossible. You know, it had been 52 years without a championship. I mean, the first time I was hurt for myself, the second time I was happy for him. I was like, you know what, if this is what he wants, if this is what he's gonna do. And one of the things I love about him is if you look at how that guy surrounded himself, Rich Paul, local Cleveland kid, you know what I mean? 
Randy Mims, like all the people, Maverick Carter, those are all local kids and friends of his, his loyalty to his school and the community. Like, so we have no hard feelings for him at all. Ted made some excellent points in our conversation that would make for great advice. He explained the virtues of putting your client's needs first, why you should let the jury know from the outset what you want, and how Elk and Elk utilized the collective knowledge of their lawyers. Clearly, he was a gold mine for great ideas. So I wanted to ask what the absolute best piece of advice was that he had for other lawyers. So from a trial lawyer standpoint, one of the things that I will tell you that the single best lesson I learned in my life as a trial lawyer, of course, came like every lesson, out of failure. When I started as a prosecutor, the second week I was at work, I ended up trying a case by myself because the lead prosecutor in my courtroom fell ill. So, you know, here I was, looked all of probably 12 years old with freckles and, you know, colics in my hair and tried an aggravated arson case. Won the case, couldn't have been more excited for myself, but if I'm being fair, there was an eyewitness who saw the crime. They caught him a mile away from the crime with the evidence. So it wasn't a Rubik's cube. The second case I tried, like 10 days later, one, again, not the most complicated case. My third case that I tried, I lost. And it was a really tough case. It was, the evidence was much thinner. There was a lot more steps. The lawyer on the other side was just a really, really cool guy who I loved trying the case against. And my mentor in that prosecutor's office was a guy named Fred Zook the nicest, most humble guy you could ever meet. And Fred brought me in and said, he goes, you know, there's something I always say about verdicts. He goes, they can make a fool look like a hero and a hero look like a fool. He said, he goes, I've watched your trials. He goes, you weren't that good in your first case and you won. He goes, you tried a really nice case in your third case and you lost. You were a much better lawyer in case three than case one. So he said, never judge yourself by the verdict. Instead, while you're waiting for that verdict, use that time to ask yourself, did the case go in as I had expected? Did the case go in as well as I could have put that case in? And he goes, be fair to yourself and then accept the verdict. And it's hard to do for clients. You know what I mean? And I don't minimize. I say, in the course of my, you know, 20 some years, there's six cases that I truly wish, you know, of the hundreds turned out differently. And I say those names every morning, they're in my wallet. But for me as a lawyer, I do that same process every time. The minute the case is done, while we're waiting for the verdict, I do my own debrief of the case. And honestly, it's the only time you can be fair. Because if you get a big verdict, you're a hero no matter how bad you are in the courtroom. If you lose, people are going to question you no matter what. So that was the single best advice I ever got. And it kind of gives you a little bit of a defensive back mentality. You know what I mean? That every once in a while, something can go your way. So that was going to be my final question, but I have to ask another question here just because that's such a great statement. Do you take that same approach on the case that you, that you won? Yeah. For sure. So you're done. You don't know if you won or not. I'm a believer that 
you want to do your best for these people. And what an incredible privilege for someone to trust you. You know, no one wants to be a plaintiff. No one would trade their health or their child's health for any amount of money. And I take such great pride in the fact that someone trusts me. Honestly, like I still see myself as the same, like everyone else, you see yourself as the same person who grew up, went to high school, you know what I mean? Like college, but you don't see yourself as necessarily someone's resource. But whether we win or lose, and on every case that we resolve or win, I try to make it my mission to call those clients every year just to see how they're doing. Because honestly, some people put their money into annuities. Some people put their money into investments. Some people do different things. So I want to learn. Because if I learn that a client did something in their house that made their child's you know, I mean, cerebral palsy easier to deal with, I want to be able to tell the next client who we're successful for. And honestly, like, it charges you up too. I mean, when you call and hear that you're making a functional difference in someone's day-to-day -day life. And that's what lawsuits are about. Lawsuits aren't about boats and money and luxurious items. Lawsuits for us are about wheelchairs, wide doorways, you know, track systems and ceilings, extra exits from houses. So never, ever, ever, ever stop learning, you know, from your successes, from your failures, whatever it is, there's something there that will be better for your next client. In any business, it's all too easy to focus on results and numbers and sometimes forget a little about the user, the customer, or the client. But Jay's success as a lawyer goes to show that putting your client's needs first isn't just important, it's imperative. And if you take care of your clients, then the firm will take care of itself. You've been listening to the Rankings Podcast. I'm Chris Dreyer. A huge thank you to today's guest, Jay Kelly, for joining us. You can find all of the links from today's conversation in the show notes. And we want to hear from you. Jay likes to draw on his acting classes, but what non-attorney skills do you find useful as a lawyer? Drop us a review and share your thoughts. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.